Gabe Miller here, and I want to personally thank you for checking out our podcast. And I also want to encourage you to click the subscribe button so that each week's message will automatically show up in your feed. Another great way to stay connected with this is on our website at yourimpactchurch.com and on all of our social media outlets at Your Impact Church. I hope this message today encourages you, inspires you, and challenges you. Let's jump into the message. Um, If you have your Bibles, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1 this morning. Um, I'm going to be taking some time to look at a a small four-chapter book of the uh, Old Testament that I feel like God has just jam-packed some truth in there for us. Um, Let's start out and let's pray and ask God that He would help us this morning. Father, we thank You for who You are. Lord, we thank you that um, you have you have called this body together, God. That you have um, are continuing to move and work through this body. Lord, we thank you for uh, Pastor Gabe and for those that are that are on the the mission field as we speak. God, we ask that you would give them mercy, that you would give them traveling grace as they make their way back home, and we ask that you would teach us this morning. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who anoints us. We ask that you would open our eyes and ears to receive from you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to speak to you uh, this morning on the uh, subject of providential pain. Providential pain. Uh, if you, you that know me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a verse-by-verse guy, I, I, so my plan is to kind of walk through this chapter this morning, verse-by-verse, uh, verse, and... Um, make a few observations when we uh, get a good idea of the context. Ruth uh, chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell there in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to the country of Moab, and there they remained. I, I want to kind of just paint a picture for you of the time in which we're talking about here. In verse 1, it says that it came to pass in the time when the judges ruled in the time when the judges ruled and if you've if you've read the book of judges you know that that just that implies this time when Israel was just vacillating back and forth being under oppression by the different nations that were they were living in the midst of they would they would turn to other gods they would turn to idolatry and God would turn them over to the nations around them and then they would cry out God get us out of this and then God would get them out of it, and then they would go right back to the very thing that God got them out of, Um, kind of like what I've done a lot. Um, And uh, as as we start looking into this this period of time, if you read the book of Judges, the last verse of the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That gives you an idea of the time that we're dealing with. In verse 1, it says there was a certain man named Elimelech. 
Elimelech. In Hebrew, a lot of the names have significance. This guy's name means that God is my king. God is my king. And his, his wife's name, Naomi, means pleasant or sweetness. Pleasant or sweetness. They are coming out of Bethlehem. That is the house of bread, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And they are leaving there because there is no bread to be found in the house of bread. Verse 1 says there was a famine in the land. Starting at verse, uh, verse 3, it says that, uh, So Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons, and they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kalion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. There's a lot of time, there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of hurt packed into these three verses. This woman, Naomi, has gone from being the wife of a godly husband to now being a, a, a widow, a childless widow. Both of her sons die, and now she's left in a foreign land with two childless, barren, widowed daughters-in-law who are Moabites. They're Moabites, and you're probably thinking, what is, what is a Moabite? Right. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says, Lord instructs that an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. These people God had pronounced judgment upon earlier in the Old Testament. And this is God's way of saying, no how, no way. I don't want them anywhere around my people. And Naomi finds herself with daughter-in-laws who are Moabite, and this is who she's surrounded with. Naomi is a, a woman whom life has just emptied out. She has no sons. She has no husband. Matter of fact, she says so herself down in verse 21 of the text. She says, I went out full, but the Lord brought me home again empty. I went out full, but he brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me? She is broken. She is empty. All of her plans, her dreams, and her aspirations have died in Moab. For Naomi, whose name means pleasant or sweet, life is not pleasant anymore. And it has definitely lost its sweetness. And as I read that, I couldn't help but wonder... I wonder how many in here this morning would testify that, hey, man, that's me, right? Like life has lost its sweetness. I'm in a place of being emptied out, and I feel like I just can't get a break. This, this may not be the most encouraging truth, but it is a truth nonetheless. Pain is inevitable. Pain is a part of life. 1 Peter 5.10 says that the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, after you have suffered a while, he will, he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And we read that and we're like, yeah, I, I need to be settled. I need to be strengthened. But let me just mark out that middle of that part that says after you have suffered a while. Psalm 34.19 says that many 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. You are going to go through some things. You are going to encounter trials. I've heard it said that you're either going into a trial, you're in the middle of a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. And for Naomi, she's in this, this position where she's lost all financial stability. Right? This was basically a, an, a sentence of immense poverty for a woman in her position for the rest of her life. All her sons are gone. She has no sense of security. And as we consider her this morning, I think that it should challenge us just in the area of the fact that God, God has placed people within our sphere of influence, right? People that you work with, people sitting right here in this church that, frankly, they're just, they're not okay. Right? They're not okay. They've, they've, they've been emptied out. They're trying to figure out how to pay July's electric bill, or they're trying to figure out, Lord, how am I going to buy clothes for my kids to go back to school in? There are people that are hurt, and they're emptied, and I think that it should challenge us, just like we, we did on serve day, to be open, to have our eyes open to being the hands and feet of Christ. Right, that, that I'm going to I'm going to listen to the people that are talking around me. I'm going to get to know that person that's sitting beside me that I, I haven't even asked them their name, and I'm I'm just going to do I'm going to share life with them, and see is there an opportunity for me to be a blessing to them, to be a blessing to them. Let's keep going. Uh, verse verse six says that Naomi she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as, he, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and as you could expect from three women, they all gathered together and they start bawling, right? But she, she, she tells them, don't come with me, right? Go back to your people. Go back to where you came from. Go back and find a husband, find security. I don't have anything for you. So we keep reading verse 10. It says, they said to her, now surely we're going to return with you and your people but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that, that you would have husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, and if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you then wait for them until they were grown? Would you restrain yourself from having husbands? No, my daughters, it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and they bawled again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Please follow her. And when we read the story, we're usually looking at the commitment of Ruth, right? That she's just, she's putting it all aside. She's, she's leaving everything that she's ever known. She's leaving the people that, she's, that she was born and, and raised around and she is willing to leave all of that to go and follow her mother-in-law 
But man, what does it say about her mother-in-law? Right? That, 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 that her daughters-in-law would up and leave everything to follow their mother-in-law. How many of you want to go spend the rest of your life with your mother-in-law? Right? I mean, that's, 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 that's huge. Some kind of mother-in-law that we're dealing with. And Naomi's like, hey, I don't have anything to offer you. And she says four times in verse 8, 11, 12, and 15, she says, go back. Go back where you came from. I don't have anything for you. And I think just as a side note, I think a lot of times there are people that come alongside us and they want to help us out. And then we just, no, I got this, right? I got this. But, but usually, I mean, what, what is it that keeps us from allowing people to get the blessing of helping us out? It's our pride. Right? Pride gets in the way. No, I, I, I can take care of this. And we, and we cut off somebody else's blessing of being able to help us out. And that's exactly where Naomi, in verse 13, she makes a statement. She says, it grieves me very much. It grieves me very much that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The New Living right there says that the Lord, the Lord has raised his fist against me. The Lord's hand has gone out against me, and you too have suffered the fallout from it. You've been barren for 10 years. You're widows. You're in your 20s. And now, because of me, you're in this situation. That's what she's saying. Naomi is saying, this is all my fault it would be better for you to go back to your own gods how many of you try to win somebody to the lord like that right don't follow me and my god it's going to be rough go back to your own gods evangelism 101 by naomi um but, but some of you, you've probably been there like, like all hell is breaking loose in your life. And you're looking around at the circumstances and saying, man, what's the common denominator here? Right? What gives? What have I done? God, why are you doing this to me? And that's where we find Naomi. These are the same accusations, if you've read the book of Job, that Job's friends were hurling at Job. They said, Job, what have you done? Have you sinned? Have you done something wrong? Job, Job chapter 4, verse 7, Eliphaz asked him, he says, whoever perished from being innocent? Right? Are, are the innocent, the things like this usually happen to the innocent? What have you done? You must have done something. Job chapter 5, verse 6, he says, affliction doesn't just happen. It doesn't just come from the dust. Trouble doesn't just spring from the ground. Right, you must have done something or you wouldn't be in this situation. That's what his friends are telling him. Even Job himself asked God, what have I done? Have I sinned? Job 7.20 says, have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? And this is where Naomi is at. When we, are, when we find ourselves in these circumstances, it's a completely normal reaction to start asking ourselves, man, God, why, why, are, you, why are you doing this? We're, we're trying to figure out what have, what have we done? Why would you ever suspect that you are deserving of God to bring all this pain on you? Why would you ever think that you deserve for all of this? 
And the answer is, because you do. Because I do. Because the wages of sin are death, and that's not just a hole in the ground, right? The wages of sin is death. That's, that's separation from God, separation from the presence of God, the love of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, all the good things of God that's separation from, and that, those are the wages of sin. It's because we do deserve it, and our conscience testifies that we deserve it. Our conscience testifies that we deserve these things. Now, church family, this, this is encouraging. And you're probably thinking, how in the world is this encouraging, right? Number one, because your conscience is still doing what it was created to do. Because the Bible talks about those whose conscience have been seared by a hot iron, right? That they're, not, they're, they're past feeling and they're no longer sensitive to God's uh, instruction and, and, and discipline. Right? Your conscience is still doing what it's, what it's supposed to do. Did, did you know that your conscience accuses you? That your conscience accuses you. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says that when the, Gentiles, when the Gentiles who don't have the law, when they by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having a law, these are a law to themselves. And it shows the work of the law written on their hearts. Right? And their conscience bears witness. And between themselves, their thoughts, their thoughts and their conscience are doing what? They're excusing or accusing your thoughts and your conscience are designed to accuse you that you are in fact in need of a Savior. That you are in need of a Savior. And family, this is the, this is the neat thing about the gospel because the gospel does not just leave you there. Right, the gospel steps in and says, yeah, you deserve every bit of that. Everything that you think that you deserve, you do deserve it, but Christ has taken that for you. Right, that Christ has stepped in and he has paid the price for everything that you should have gotten. Right, that he has redeemed you from every curse of the law, every retribution in, in, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, every, every discipline that God would have brought, every pestilence, every plague, every disease, all of that, that Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. That's why the gospel is so important. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The gospel sets us free from that and is the only real thing that can answer your conscience when your conscience accuses you. I liken this to, to a, just, just say that your, your granddad's a judge, right? And you get a speeding ticket, and you go in there. And would it be right for you to expect that your granddad is just going to kick that under the rug, right? Or would he not, out of his love for you, would he not go and then pay that price for you? Like, he's got to make things right. He can't go against his position. But then he can, he can take and he can pay that debt for you. So why are the things happening to Naomi, right? I mean, this is, this is we see what, what, what she thinks of them. Let's, let's keep on reading in, in Ruth chapter, I'm sorry, Ruth uh, chapter 1 verse 16. Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. Please don't ask me not 
to come with you. I am going with you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. And wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so and more to me. Also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking with her. And the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when it happened... When they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was excited because of them. And the, woman, the women said, is this Naomi? Back to Ruth's statement when she says, hey, I'm going with you. Don't ask me not to leave. Right? But you, we, we see just a, just a declaration of complete commitment and abandonment. Um, but look at, her, look at her statement that says, your God shall be my God. Your God shall be my God. And you have to ask yourself, what does Ruth know about Naomi's God? And the answer to that would be whatever Naomi has displayed, whatever that she, the words coming out of her mouth, right? The way that she lives her life in faith or not. And it begs the question, what do people know of your God from you? What am I teaching people about my God is there a disconnect between what I know of God and what people know of my God through me? Right. Verse, let's finish out the chapter, and then we will back up and make a few observations. Verse 20 says that she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me sweet. Call me Mara." For the Almighty, the El Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty, the El Shaddai, has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So... What does Ruth know about Naomi's God from Naomi? Those of you that know me know that I'm kind of a theology nerd. And um, I want to look at Naomi's theology for just a minute. What does she know about her? Verse 6, verse 8 and verse 9, Naomi makes these statements about God. She says that she heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So Ruth knows that God has a people, right? And that he attends to his people. He cares for his people. He provides for his people. In verse 8, the Lord, she says, The Lord deal kindly with you, just like you've dealt with me. Right? He's teaching, she's teaching that God recompenses. Like God, he, he, he treats those he is known to bless those who bless others. Uh, verse 9 says that, that the Lord may grant that you may find rest each in the house of your, of your husband. Naomi is teaching Ruth that God is gracious and that he would show favor. He would show favor to those who are Moabites. He would show favor to those that are outside of any kind of covenant with God, that this is the kind of God that she serves. And that's, I mean, that's pretty good theology so far, right? Verses 13, 20, and 21, she makes these statements. She says, It grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The Almighty has dealt, dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me home again empty. He's testified against me. 
the Almighty, the El Shaddai, has afflicted me. Now what do we do with these three verses? Our topic this morning is providential pain. Providential pain. And all three of these verses imply that it was God's hand that was executing all of the pain and the loss in Naomi's life. Look at verse 13. It was the hand of the Lord who had raised his fist against me. Verse 20 says that the El Shaddai has dealt with me, the hand that he has dealt me even. In verse 21, it says that he has testified against me. Now, this phrasing is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. God's giving law about uh, people in trials and in and, and, and court. And essentially, this is, Ruth, this is Naomi's conclusion, that in the courtrooms of heaven, that the Almighty has testified against me, and he's found me to be deserving of every one of these things. And not only that, that he has come against me, and he has done it himself. This is what Naomi's conclusion was. And so these statements pose two questions for us. Number one, what is Naomi teaching about God and is she accurate? Is she accurate in her assessment of what God has done to her? Well, the first question, what is she teaching about God? I think is this. I think that she teaches that God is... He is powerful and He is intimately involved in your life. Right? That He is still working in the midst. He, he hasn't created the cosmos and just, just said, there you go, Adam. Have at it. It's all yours. Right? That He is involved in our lives. He is involved with the day-to-day -day events of our lives. As Isaiah 46.10 says that He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, those things that are not yet done. And he says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. I will do all of my pleasure. Ephesians 1.11 says that in him we've also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who does what? Of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works. He does. He is doing. He is involved. And he has a hand in your life as well. He has a hand in your life. And let me say this. This is all coming from a woman who is broke down, who is beat, who is empty. And she still says, he's still my God. He's still my God. He's still the Almighty. He's afflicting me, but he's still my God. And I'll take that any day over someone who casts off faith in God because things got a little hot, because the fire got turned up, because things got a little hard. Right? So what else is she teaching? Naomi uses a, a name for God. She uses the El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And some of you have heard that name before. It's translated as the Almighty. The Shaddai is, is, is used in the Bible 48 times. 48 times. 31 of those times, it comes out of the book of Job. The book of Job. Do you see the connection between the book of Job and Naomi here? Right? The, the, the loss Everything that you don't understand, why these things are happening, uh, all the commonalities. 35 out of the 48 times, it is used in a sense of disciplining or destruction. And that's to be expected because the Hebrew word Shaddad means to ruin, to devastate. And that's where the word Shaddai comes from. So what else? Now, if, if you've read the book of Job, 
if you've read Job, that you'll, you'll remember two things. You'll remember at the end of the book, at the end of the book of Job, God addresses one of those friends that we talked about, one of the friends that was hurling accusations and saying, Job, what have you done? God addresses him in, in Job 42.7, and it says, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, he turns to Eliphaz the Temanite, and he says, My wrath is aroused against you, because you have not spoken of me what is correct. In all of your accusations, in all of your finger pointing and saying, Job, you must have done something. You must have done something. This has to be your fault. God says you were wrong. You were wrong. The second thing that we know from the book of Job, it comes out of the first chapter, verses 8 through 12, we see that there was an enemy involved in Job's circumstances. Verses 8 through 12, the says that the, the, the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth? That he's blameless, that he's upright, that he fears God and he shuns evil. And Satan says to, he t- answers the Lord and says, Well, does, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not built a hedge around everything that he has? Right? Have you, haven't you blessed the work of his hands around him, his household? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased. You have given him everything. But now, if you will stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he'll curse you to, his, to your face. That's what Satan says to God. And God says, all right, well, everything that he has is in your hands now. You do whatever you want to, but don't lay a hand on this person. See, we see that there was an enemy involved. The re, there, there remains the reality that there are unseen struggles and contentions in the heavenlies. And frankly, we're just not privy to everything that is going on behind the scenes. We just don't know sometimes. But for all of you that are called by his name, this text in, in Job 1 teaches us that nothing happens to you that God has not signed off on already. There is nothing that comes your way that God has not signed off on. And if he's, and if he's signed off on it, then Romans 8.28 says that he's working all those things together for our good. If God has allowed it, God is going to use it in your life. And he's going to use it to magnify his power in your life. He's going to use it to magnify his goodness in your life. He's going to use it to point to Christ in your life. God is going to use every circumstance. And you can trust in this because God is is good instead of trying to interpret and figure out God in the light of our circumstances I I think that we should interpret and figure out our circumstances in the light of God's character and his nature I can look at all of my circumstances in the light of who God is right I, I don't have I don't try to determine who God is based upon the severity of my circumstances I already know who God is I already know who he is, so I know that he is doing something in this and through this, whatever that may be. Guys, you can trust in his goodness this morning. You can trust in God's goodness. You might need to redefine good. Right? The psalmist says, the psalmist says in, in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Right, Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was good for me. 
he is good and the things that he allows will be good in your life ultimately. So I think the obvious elephant in the room is, is she right? right? Is Naomi right in her assessment of God's hand upon her life? Is it the El Shaddai who Shaddads her, who ruins her, who devastates her? Has, has he allowed it in her life? Yeah. Yeah, he has. He's sovereign. Is he carrying it out in her life? I don't know. I don't know. And frankly, I, I really don't think that she does either. I think that she makes the same assumption that Job's friends make when he says, when they say, you must have been doing something. Right? We don't always know the why behind her circumstances. As the worship team comes forward, um, I want to leave with just a few things. I've got four things that, that I think are takeaways from this passage. It's, it's easy to allow the circumstances of life to get you off kilter in your view of who God is. The first one of these things is pain is inevitable. Trials are going to come. Pain is inevitable. God has instilled within us pain as a, as a measure by which it, it, we're helped. Right? Pain is an indication that there's something wrong. Right? Pain, God has designed pain to be beneficial in our body, and it is inevitable in the circumstances of life. Number two is that God is good. God is good, and all of the circumstances of our life can be viewed in the light of His goodness. I've got a friend that is a recovering alcoholic, and he has a, a, uh, a uh, sponsor who asks him these three questions. He says, is God good? And emphatically, you answered, yeah. yeah. Does he have your best interest at heart? Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Then what's the problem? What's the problem? Is, I mean, is anything really the problem? I mean, if you've got those two things going for you, right, then you can stand on that truth that whatever circumstances I'm in, God, you're doing something. God, you're, you're working something out in me. I'm, I may not get it right now, but you're doing something in my life. The third thing is God is sovereign. God is sovereign, right? Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that God is deterministic, right? The king of England, he, he is sovereign over all England, but he doesn't determine what you're doing in your life. He doesn't determine the decisions that you make in your life. He gives everyone the opportunity and the option, choice, of making their own decisions. He is sovereign and he has rule over all of that, but he is not deterministic. And number four, your circumstances and your pain, they are providential. They are providential. This implies three things for us. It implies, number one, your circumstances are within the bounds of His sovereignty. They are according to His foresight, His foreknowledge, because God stands outside of time, right? Like, like we, we think in linear terms, but, 
But God, in a sense, is standing outside of, of the timeline, and he's working down here. Right? We're right here, and he's working right here, but he's also working down here for our good because it's according to his foresight. And number three, that your circumstances, being that they're, provid- that, that they're providential, that they are timely. Your circumstances, your pain, whatever it is, it is timely. God is intentional about what he allows in your life. For Ruth, if you read the end of the book, you see that she becomes the great-great-great-grandmother of King David, who would later on be the patriarch of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is always working things out for people's good and for his glory. And let me, let me encourage you. I, I don't want you to find yourself disheartened if, if you're in a situation and you think to yourself, well, things might have been different if I, if I would have had a little bit more faith. That, that's garbage. I'll, I'll tell you, that, that's wrong. Right? God factored in my flesh and my stupidity when he called me to himself. Praise God. And he factored in yours too. He knows what he's doing. Psalm 139 says that he knows my frame. He knows how he made me. And he knows the nature that I have. And his spirit is strong enough. His spirit is strong enough to get inside here and change things that I can't change. Amen. Last of all, I want to close with my favorite, one of my favorite verses. And, uh, and I encourage you to go out and claim the victory that is yours. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace, he will crush Satan under whose feet? Under your feet. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Know that God is alive and well, and he is stronger than the enemy. There's nothing that can come against you that God teams are going to come down if, if you've got if, if maybe you're in that this position where, where you're resonating with Naomi right you would say man I'm empty like I'm broke like I don't have anything to give right now Lord and I don't understand what you're doing come down here and get prayer come down here and get prayer with one of our, with one of our people down here but maybe you're in a position where you're like, man, I don't even know. I can't even say that I'm his. I don't even know what that really means or what that looks like. Come find me. After this church, let's have a conversation. Right? Don't leave this place today until you know who's you are. Dustin, will you pray for us as we close for some worship? Father, we're thankful for your goodness, God, for your mercy and your grace. Father, you're so good. God, we thank you for your word that we heard this morning. God, I pray that it would penetrate our hearts today. God, that we would not walk out of this place and uh, just forget about it. But God, that we would uh, really walk this thing out, God. God, we thank you for who you are, God, for what you're doing. In Jesus' name. Let's worship.